Welcome to the Religious Studies Project. It's Monday. It's time for another podcast. Have you ever wondered what Devo has to do with 19th century anthropologist E.B. Tyler? I am David McConaughey. And with me is... I'm Brianne Fallon, and I have wondered what Devo has to do with the works of E.B. Tyler. And you had an interview with uh, John Modern on the science of prayer and genealogies and biopolitics, which I'm sure will help answer this question. So, take it away. Welcome. My name is David McConaughey, and today I'm joined by Professor John Lardis Martin, who teaches at Franklin and Marshall College and is the author of several books, The Bop Apocalypse, Religious Visions of Kerouac, Ginsburg, and Burroughs, Secularism in Antebellum America, and he is the co-editor with Katie Lofton of Class 200, New Studies in Religion, an excellent book series that I recommend heartily to all of our listeners. Uh, Professor Modern, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate having your time today. Well, thank you, David, and good morning to you. Good morning as well. I would invite you to share with us a little bit about your ongoing projects. What are you working on right now, and how can we develop that into an interesting conversation for our listeners about the idea of the scientific study of prayer? Ah, well, that's a good question. Um, So currently, I am uh, sort of uh, betwixt and between different projects. I'm doing some final revisions on a book project that I've been working on for about, oh, 10 years or so, which deals with uh, the sort of histories, the genealogies of the cognitive and neuroscientific studies of religion. And so a lot of my interest in measurement and calculability and the kind of incursion of certain forms of mathematical formalism um, into, you know, humanities and social sciences in general, but for our particular purposes, the study of religion and even more specifically, the study of prayer sort of derives from that research. But I'm also and very excited by kind of project that I'm, I have my, it's on the horizon that I've been dabbling in for the last few years, which is uh, connected to the previous project on cognitive science. But it's, it's taking, um, I'm thinking about the developments in science, particularly cybernetics in the mid 20th century, and trying to think through that problematic by telling a story about the history of Akron, Ohio, um, from the 19th century through deindustrialization in the 1970s. So let's talk a little bit about that story. Some of what John and I are going to talk about is from the very first inaugural issue of American Religion in an essay called Praying Hands that really connects some of these issues for us. The scientific study of prayer, as you outline in the beginning of that piece, begins in the late 19th century. Can you talk about the origins of the scientific study of prayer? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I guess I'd first qualify, you know, in any kind of question about origins or discussions about origins are always a little bit fraught um, because Mm. just to sort of paraphrase Don DeLillo, you can never tell where it begins, anything where it begins. Um, But for the conceit of the article, I do locate an origin point in a sort of uh, Victorian England among sort of natural scientists, particularly three that I sort of talk about in the article. E.B. Tyler, everybody's favorite anthropologist, Victorian anthropologist of the 19th <laughs> century, and his in his uh, two-volume uh, work, uh, Primitive Culture in 1871. 
and uh, also the following year, 1872, which in England was the, the sort of season of the prayer gauge debates in which prayer, uh, the subject of prayer became a kind of talking point among certain kinds of established scientists from the Royal Society, particularly John Tyndall and Francis Galton, who in their sort of kind of reaction to the sort of state in kind of calling for a day of, of national prayer of, for, uh, for the country in terms of thinking about some of the issues, they, they kind of responded in a way that really reminds you, I would say, of kind of almost new atheist pose in the present, you know, the kind of trolling kind of sort of attitude toward religion. And so what, what the, in the prayer gauge debates, basically, they use this as an opportunity to publish these sort of almost tongue in cheek, but also semi serious articles about what the scientific study of prayer would look like. And in, in doing so kind of pointed out what a ridiculous proposition it would be to sort of take prayer seriously as a kind of religious faculty. But it could be taken seriously by, by measuring it and coming up with sophisticated experimental designs by which one would study the prayers of people and how effective they were. And this is combined with E.B. Tyler, who in a, a sort of different setting, E.B. Tyler's not trolling anybody <laughs> in primitive culture, um, but he is making some very, you know, very kind of provocative claims about the history and the origins of religion. And he sees prayer as he sees religion as a kind of necessary evolutionary development within human history, that it does serve uh, an evolutionary purpose of advancing both cognition and uh, social structure. And he sees it uh, primarily um, as a, a kind of way, in, in similar ways, which contemporary cognitive science see it, uh, as something that can, in fact, be measured. And for Tyler, his, his sort of standard of measurement in the 1870s was sort of adopting the new science, or not the new, but the kind of exciting possibilities that were being unleashed by the science of statistics and looking at, you know, kind of large data sets of populations and trying to crunch the numbers in such a way as you could figure something out about not only the population, but um, the individuals that comprise the population. So in Tyler, you also see in a less ironic mode, this desire to proclaim that religion is something that's out there in the world that humans do, which is, which is, which is a founding assumption. But moreover, it's something that cannot simply be described or compared, um, but it's also something that can be measured with the precision and, and, the, and the tightness of numbers with the kind of underlying assumption that whatever mathematical formalism one brings to the object of prayer, that prayer can be contained within that, that sort of formal structure, that the idea that whatever exceeds in human life and religion is not necessarily first and foremost on the minds of people like Tyler and, and Galton and Tyndall. I'm really amused by some of the examples that, that you cite, especially in the, the research questions that they asked. So, the simple question of do sick persons who pray or are prayed for recover on average more rapidly than others was a kind of like guiding question for the statistical model. But then when they went to, to draw on the data, they crunched numbers from whether clerics 
had better yeah. health outcome yes. outcomes than than lawyers mm-hmm. and whether slave ships were more likely to sink than those that were carrying missionaries on them i mean this is these are provocative data sets yeah and so that's that's galton sort of you know again kind of trolling it's like okay if prayer really works or is effective wouldn't you think that these 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 people who are prayed for um, <laughs> more than others uh, would feel the benefits, would feel the effects of those prayers, and so simply as a kind of anecdote, uh, Galton's just like this is a kind of ridiculous proposition, and I think I also mentioned in my piece something to the effect of it's like wouldn't the insurance companies be on this <laughs> if this if right, this was a right. viable option? Who do you think would be first and foremost on it in order to yeah. sort of make money and to maximize their capitalist margin i can't imagine that that geico and state farm would pass up an opportunity like that oh no and that i mean i think that you know in a lot of ways that's that's you know for me when i when i read that piece actually but galt i'm like oh my gosh you know in a lot of ways as you know as a a kind of genealogist i i sort of live in the past in a weird strange temporality where i don't in a sense, walk around the world making hard and fast distinctions about past, present, and future. It's just sort of a kind of cultivated temporality. And you see Galton doing this in the 19th century, with re- which resonates so much with contemporary sort of scientific studies of religion, spirituality, prayer, meditation, where, you know, you know, we at the AAR will see, you know, the, you know, a session in the cognitive science of religion on the study of meditation or something. And we'll go to it and we'll have arguments, etc. But, I think the one thing to keep in mind that this research that these scientists are doing is being operationalized far outside the discipline of religious studies. Uh, it is being operationalized by, by pharmaceutical companies. It is being operationalized by, by insurance companies who, who, you know, in a lot of ways, last 15 years of uh, the kind of incursion of wellness programs into every nook and cranny of, of institutionalized um, bureaucratic life is, I think, a product of uh, this 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 kind of conception that this is useful data. It's data about religion that's not simply about you know figuring out what religion is or what the human is. It's 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 data that can be capitalized upon. It's data that can in a sense make your business model or your drug more effective or something like that. So there are these consequences of this of this kind of intellectual sort of history that I'm sort of putting together that I think are haunting the piece or in the background of the piece in a lot of ways. I appreciate the idea that there's a moment perhaps that you're that you're putting your finger on it might might not be the first moment but it's but it's a very clear moment where religion is being identified as an instrumental object. It is a thing that can act, it can do, it can be appropriated for certain ends and and we have a moment in the quantification of prayer when we can trace deliberately the actions of specific persons pursuing those ends and the ways in which that actually changes not only what religion is about, but maybe religion's opposites. Can, can you speak a little bit about how measuring prayer actually changes something about the way that we understand the category of religion and non-religion and the ways in which questioning, measuring, quantifying mm. really provokes challenges to the categories that we use in the world to describe things like prayer? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think the first thing I would say, you know, if one stands in the world, 
and stands and looks upon the world and, and assumes as a matter of course that the thing that you are interested in is a matter of identifying it, locating it, and and measuring it with the confidence that one can identify, locate, and, and measure it with a precision to situate it in the world, to to locate it in the world in a very specific way, to kind of contain it in a lot of ways. Um, it's going to affect the kinds of questions that you're going to ask. And so, you know, with you know, my, my sort of genealogy of, of the measurement of prayer in this, this essay, um, you know, I'm trying to think a lot about, think through. So in the 19th century, you had this kind of science of statistics, the, this kind of uh, enthusiasm for the possibilities of, of measuring uh, different kinds of means across populations and trying to figure out what is essentially that which defines a population in terms of religion or mortality or whatever it might be, where, you know, the study of prayer becomes, okay, does prayer work, right? The initial questions are for, you know, Tyndall and Galton and some of the people who responded to Tyndall and Galton. You have all these religious folks, people who are practicing theologians or sort of self-identified religious leaders in the Anglican church who are kind of hitting back against this trolling that they, they feel that they have been subject to by, by saying that, that prayer does, in a sense, work, not because it can be measured in terms of you know, uh, better mortality rates of, of clerics or something like that, but it, it works as, as a kind of moral salve or as a kind of social cohesive kind of energy or something like that. So in that moment, you have both sides sort of thinking about religion, or prayer in particular, in a way both are coming at it as we, it's something in the world out there that can be identified and located. And although some of the religious critics are not using statistics, they, are, they have, in a sense, moved into a space where we begin to see this, this kind of separation of categories of the religious and the secular. And so you fast forward that a little bit, let's say, in my piece, I also I jump around a lot in the piece um, in terms of time periods. But you see in the, you know, in, in the contemporary moment where, you know, nobody's studying prayer statistically like that as much anymore. There was a recent study about 10 years ago, um, I think in the Harvard Medical Review or some, maybe it was a Harvard scientist, I forget, but something to the effect, but kind of saying like, I'm not sure prayer works. <laughs> uh, right. You know, I'm not sure, you know, this, we, we've done the data points. It's not, it doesn't work as a kind of sort of model of cause and effect. Um, but now, I mean, that's, that's the question becomes, well, what is, how do we measure what's happening in the brain when somebody prays? Is there right. something about commonality across different kinds of brains that we can, with a degree of certainty, claim that we can understand prayer as a particular style of cognition, or we can reduce prayer to a kind of cognitive sort of system. And so I sort of see that your initial question, like, what, is, what happens in these categories? Well, it's, it's, we're here where the brain, for example, in the contemporary moment, oddly becomes a kind of site and, and location and, and place of investment of energies and desires and fears and ambitions that maybe perhaps we would normally understand as something that what we think when religion happens, that's what happens. And so the brain itself and the desire for measurement, the desire to calculate, and the kind of righteousness that is often adopted by those who would deign to measure such things as prayer and religion itself becomes oddly, strangely resonant with the precise precisely the category that they are trying to, in a sense, 
explain away through their regimes of measurement. This jives a lot. I was re-listening to a recent uh, interview that Ben Marcus did about separation of church and state. And in that recent interview, one of the things that the the lawyers that he was interviewing suggested that efforts to expand the category of religious liberty in the contemporary era are a slippery slope that ends up limiting religious freedom later on that you Hmm. think you want, you think you want that Liberty, but when you get it, you find out that uh, you did not get what you bargained for. And, and in some sense, I think that's what you're saying here as well, that by studying prayer, we turn prayer into an object that we can control. We study meditation, we turn it into an object to control. By doing that, we try to exert power over that particular exercise of religion and try to define where and where its power does not rely, right? Whether meditation is valuable for us, okay, then everybody should do it. Mm -hmm. Is prayer good for us? Everyone should do it. And if we prove it wrong, then we have reduced potentially the set of variables that prayer could act on to only is it good or bad for our health and not the range of things that it might have meant prior to that moment. So that the studying of it actually narrows the focus down so much that it limits the object considerably. Is is that something that you that you're seeing here? Yes, I think and I think that's you know, I think that's a good recitation of that kind of move of modernity, right? Because we're you know, again, we're we're dealing with this this kind of objectification of prayer in a moment where biomedical regimes, pharmaceutical regimes, various, you know, risk assessment regimes are using this knowledge in a way that is, that is, is limiting, right? Um, yeah. You know, on the idea that one perhaps, I mean, I, 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 I'll speak for my own institution. Like I, I am incentivized economically to do yoga and mm. to count calories and to do various things that are going to prove to the health insurance overlords that, I am an employee who is going to save them money in the long run. You know, right. uh, I don't do this. I don't do this. I do these four or five things. And so this is something that is troubling, right? Because again, it's not simply a kind of intellectual debate among scholars, although I, I love participating in those. I think the stakes are, are much higher in ways that have to do not just simply, I mean, the study of prayer is just said one example of a kind of larger sort of trajectory um, that we are moving into and through kind of just a continual unfolding of a kind of biopolitical sort of dynamic that, um, that Michel Foucault sort of identified long ago. And so I've, I'm also reminded here where these larger sort of things, this came to a head when I was at a, uh, I was at a retreat in um, Denmark, uh, and it was a, a retreat for those scientists, cognitive and neuroscientists and scholars who were associated with a project that came out of the University of Aarhus there um, called the Mind Lab Project, which mm. was uh, a five-year sort of huge thing that was happening, which the study of, of, of cognition and religion sort of came to the fore. And so this was a re- retreat. It was a beautiful retreat in this kind of pastoral setting. And I, I, the first night I sat down for the dinner, the opening dinner, and I sat beside a PhD in chemistry uh, from Berlin, who wasn't an academic, um, but was uh, he was uh, somebody who worked for the, a major pharmaceutical company in Germany, in Berlin. And I was asked, like, well, what are you doing here? What's, what's your interest in this sort of cognitive science of religion thing? And basically, without 
you know, without any irony, uh, was just like, you know, I'm really fascinated by, you know, what they're showing about the kind of neural correlates of mysticism and meditation, you know, for, for, for himself as a, as a, as a, as a scientist, he, he felt that he could begin to take this data and to begin to be able to see how the brain operates, you know, when one is meditating or one is praying and to be able to then kind of reverse engineer that process by, by in a sense, literally coming up with a drug that would replicate uh, what's happening in your brain, uh, you know, in, in light of what they think is going on in your brain when you're meditating or something like that, mm. which sounds almost like a kind of almost conceit out of a science fiction novel, but it, it does. It's, it's happening, right? It's happening. There's a Doctor Who episode where the the doctor is I think it's about season three or four and they go to this community and the community has polluted the earth beyond all measure and everybody gets by drugs that represent emotion mm. and so the doctor and his uh, companion martha at that moment i believe are offered do you want happy that's the drug right mm-hmm. the drug is a, a patch that will give you happy or for- forget is mm-hmm. is the is the drug and and those kind of designer drugs that sci-fi future that does not feel so terribly far off right now oh no i mean just think of i mean just think of the the saturation of different kinds of neuro enhancers and 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 various ways in which we are using drugs to sort of you know change and and to cultivate a la phrenology you know a 19th century sort of practice of of seeing brain plasticity as 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 the key to actualizing one's freedom or subjectivity you know this is you know this future and that and then that ties in where okay you know you need you, you know the idea where we're living in a, in, a, in a situation where i mean i don't know i'm just feeling the effects for example every year at my institution our healthcare gets cut because healthcare mm-hmm. is just you know in a, in a ballooning kind of expense right and you see a future where in order to you know in a sense treat people or to have insurance, one might be subject to different kinds of restrictions, the same way in which, for example, you know, if you smoke, you're not, your health insurance or your life insurance rates are going to be higher, right? Right. And so what's different? Like, well, do you pray or more yet, if you don't pray, do you take this drug that replicates what happens to your brain when you pray? And, right. and that's, a, that's a really strange world because then you can imagine the next step. Where, you know, if, if you're prognosticating what does the future of, well, let's say, American religious history look like, you'll begin to have different kinds of movements, uh, different kinds of groups and individuals and, and formations that, that are revolving around the practice, the myths and rituals of these kinds of conceptions of cognition, right? Which we already see, for example, in Scientology, which is mm-hmm. emerging at a moment in the 1940s and 1950s where the sort of concept, our concept of the brain that we inhabit right now in 2020 as basically constituted by a a network of neurons that processes information. Uh, This this kind of paradigm comes together in the 1940s with, you know, the uh, uh, kind of the, the notion of a logical calculus, an essay or an article in 1943 put out by Warren McCulloch and Walter Pitts and it gets kind of integrated with burgeoning theories of information that are coming from Claude Shannon, Norbert Wiener, different kinds of mathematicians. And, to, and together, when these are integrated, there's a, there's a paradigm shift in how we understand the brain. And that is, you know, more or less, I mean, there are many kinds of ups and downs and 
you know, kinds of tangents that happens. But essentially, we, we, we do assume that the brain is constituted by neurons processing information. And that is, you know, that's, that's, that's an interesting kind of thing that Hubbard was way into. He designed an entire kind of religion and cosmology around that conceit. Hmm. So it's happened before and it will happen again, I am sure. So if, if that's one version of the story, in your article, you propose that there might be some alternatives. And one hmm. of your sources for your alternatives is the countercultural music band Devo. Can, can you explain yeah. how, how Devo f- fits into all this? How do we go from uh, E.B. Tyler and these folks that were arguing about whether or not prayer is effective to, to, to Devo? Well, yeah, that, I mean, I guess, you know, once people perhaps hear this, this podcast, they might actually pick up the article and, read it and, and kind of encounter like what, what on earth is going on here? Um, so, so the essay does, you know, moves from the 19th century and it kind of ends with this sort of meditation on, on Akron in the 1970s, which as I mentioned is my next project and I'm sort of thinking a lot about. And so when I was asked to sort of, um, sort of think about an essay for, to submit to this new journal, um, of, of Sarah, um, Imhoff and, and Cooper Harris are editing, uh, you know, uh, I was like, well, I don't have anything quite rare, but I had this kind of idea where I can sort of connect things. It's kind of crazy and weird. And they're like, yes, we want that. And so the invitation to the sort of, you know, really kind of think outside of a, a kind of standard, you know, academic essay was quite inviting. And mm. so in this piece, you know, I put together all of these different kinds of components that on some level are addressing the notion of prayer. And as you mentioned, a lot of the essay is about, I guess, maybe the kind of um, reductions that are happening or the kinds of enclosures that are hap- that I see happening in the objectification of religion and the scientific measurement of prayer. And I do end with a kind of moment, the conceit of praying hands, which is an early Devo song. Devo is a kind of conceptual art project that emerged out of Kent State University in the early 1970s in the aftermath of uh, the May 4th shootings in 1970. You know, just a bunch of kids who had some kind of nutty ideas and who were reacting to what they saw was a kind of utter sort of failure um, of the civilization that contained them. And they started making weird music, wearing weird costumes, doing kinds of just strange things. And this is one of their early songs that, you know, they talk about praying hands and they, and the, the line that kind of keeps repeating is that, you know, praying hands, real praying hands pray to no man. They pray to no man. And so, you know, one of the things that I am projecting upon Devo, I think, I'm not sure, you know, the leaders of Devo uh, were sort of reading a lot of negative theology at the time. But they were, you know, um, you know, kind of weirdly involved in a lot of weird religious stuff that I talk about there and elsewhere. But it's this kind of notion of, of what does it mean to think uh, about a world um, uh, that at the end of the day is resistant to calculation, is resistant to the human standards of measurement that we um, assume that it can be subsumed under? What if there is a a kind of horizon of unknowing in our world? What if these categories of the religion versus the secular, this categorical difference is simply seen as a kind of his, an object, an artifact of history, as a, a kind of 
a social construction that has done a tremendous amount of work in this world, but still at the end of the day, um, something that is strangely made up. And, and so I see somebody like Devo as, you know, given their kind of artistic license to be able to sort of act, create, think, and live in a way that um, doesn't first and foremost ascribe to some of the categorical differences and some of the some of the sort of common sense assumptions that 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 people often do. And so in the piece, they uh, kind of they for a couple for a, for a season in 1979, they had this kind of thing that they would do where they came out. Um, as the opening act for their own concerts where uh, people, they were not a big band at the time or that big, they had their only their first album out. And so people weren't sort of familiar with what they looked like. So they would come out uh, for a 20 minute set before their main set uh, um, playing this band called Dove, D-O-V-E, the band of love. And they would do a 20 minute set of these kinds of sort of cheesy kind of religious songs, kind of, you know, they did uh, a worrying man by the Carter family. Uh, and they did the song Praying Hands, in which they would uh, sort of kind of do this kind of evangelical performance, a kind of uh, a revivalist kind of ethos. And, and, and they would uh, sort of do this thing before Devo came out. And I've always found that to be sort of sweet, alluring, and attractive. And my goal was to sort of make sense of it in a way that perhaps pointed to an alternative or an outside of the fairly dark story that I tell. I, I tell a lot of dark stories in my work. Most of my stories are pretty dark. Um, and so I'm always sort of keen to try to find some spark of hope or redemption or light somewhere. Not too much, but just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fascinated by the idea that, that a band would be its own opener and, and would invert what they were doing the the line in in your piece that that really caught my attention was that the the singer would say uh oh brothers and sisters praise jesus and now here's a reborn uh devo song when they play the devil music now it's gone the praying hands it's just this 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 openness to the inversion of who they're about hey crowd you thought you were here for us weird punk people playing you know music and dancing in weird ways and dressing in weird ways and and by the way here's some jesus music to start yeah yeah no it's 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 sort of gee i mean i love it and one of the you know one of the things that i've been really lucky and privileged to have done over the last couple years is to be in contact with um some of those guys who were in devo jerry casali and mark mothersbaugh particularly and to sort of talk to them a little bit about what they were thinking you know and and vis-a-vis religion you know in that moment and, and both of them, uh, in a sense, mention the kind of weird, strange influence of um, this televangelist named Rex Humbard, who's also in the piece uh, on prayer, where, you know, what, you know, something that Jerry told me was like, you know, he learned a lot, you know, watching Rex Humbard, you know, watching these televangelists um, as just as a performer of like, how do you captivate an audience? How do mm. you cultivate a kind of charismatic kind of performance? And so just... At the level of aesthetics, um, I, I think Devo, early Devo, particularly borrowed much from uh, the sort of stagecraft of somebody like Rex Humbard and the kind of evangelical stagecraft, which has a very long and rich history in America. And so Devo is this kind of weird inverted endpoint where they're taking that tradition and inverting it the same way in which they would, you know, the whole point of Devo, it's, it's about 
they were originally called the de-evolution band. That was the kind of mm. long, the de-evolution. So their whole point is a kind of Adorno and Horkheimer dialectic of enlightenment point. The idea that all this work and advertisement that is going into substantiating the progress of, of enlightenment culture, of civilization, is actually ironically producing the exact opposite. And, right. and, and it's producing not, not evolution, but de-evolution. It's producing decline, not progress. And, you know, that's, that's, you know, that is one of those kinds of what if, what if things are not getting better, right? You know, it, it, what, if, what if things aren't getting better? Imagine all the kinds of, again, the kinds of questions you would ask, but also all the, all the, the, the sort of constellation of common sense assumptions that you hold to be self-evident. To what degree would they be upended, challenged, or at least put in tension uh, in some way, right? While you were talking, I was picturing a moment from the movie "Oh Brother, Where Art Thou." Have you have you seen that before? Yes, I saw it a long time ago. Yep, yep. So there's a big political scene, and they are at a rally, and the the main characters are on stage, and they're playing their song, um, which the political person is kind of against. But then he sees how much the crowd is into the music, mm-hmm. and he's and he and he changes his tune instantly. Right? He pivots and he says, "Oh, the crowd is into this. I guess I need to be into this." Too. Too. And he walks up and he, on stage and he celebrates them and he says, and now you're going to lead us all in a rousing chorus of you are my sunshine, right? Mm-hmm. This this kind of inversion. I wonder when, when you see Devo as kind of taking its inspiration from the stagecraft of religious persons, whether that's that's part of, of the story that you're telling with the scientific study of, of, of hmm. prayer too. I think absolutely, which gets us back to the idea where you know, think about, you know, okay, a concern with charisma or a concern with the crowd, right? You know, you think about these terms. These terms are sort of central to the development of the sort of academic study of religion, right? When people thought yeah. about religion, they would think, oh, charisma, or think about crowd behavior, you know, Durkheim or whatever, right. or Weber or something like that. And so you get to Devo where, in, you know, my kind of conceit is that, that they're exploding these kinds of categorical differences where, yeah. you know, to what degree is, is that a religious thing or a secular thing? And, and, and so I'm not really interested in saying, well, Devo is a little bit, is this religion or is that secular? And I have a little fun thing at the end where, you know, um, where, where Mark, Mothers by the Lead Singer of Devo, mentioned to me and you know, it wasn't serious necessarily, but it's like, you know, we, sh- you know, talking to you, John, we probably should have made Devo a religion. You know, he was kind of <laughs> mocking me a little bit. And I was just like, yeah, yeah. And I just sort of got excited uh, in a kind of almost sort of fanboy sort of way. Um, and, and, you know, it was this moment where like, you know, this, this, this kind of encapsulates for me something about our, our desire, our, 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 our reliance upon, uh, for example, the distinction between the religious and the secular, even for somebody like myself, who has spent a lot of time trying to sort of think through the making of that distinction and, and to make kinds of claims about uh, how that distinction is not some sort of universal sort of uh, thing that is written into the very fabric of the cosmos, but it is a kind of human construct. I know that, right? But yet, I feel the pull of that binary. I feel the pull of the kind of uh, uh, of, of the kind of the, the, the systems of values and, and, the, and uh, that are embedded within that binary that allows me access to different parts of the world that I live in. Which is a kind of you know for me that then Devo listening to Devo or talking about Devo at least gives you some 
sort of small space by which one could possibly gain a degree of leverage, reflection, distance from the culture that contains you. I'm so glad that I had the chance to speak with you today. And I think your recommendation is really useful. Go listen to Devo. That's right. right? All the time, all day long. <laughs> Promise me. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Oh, thank you so much, David. I really very much enjoyed it. Now, that was a really fascinating interview that helped answer that question we talked about at the beginning of the podcast. But I'm wondering, Dave, if we could just politicize this a little bit more considering what's going on in the world right now. And I was wondering if you could expand on the concept of science as as an institutional concept which can be used to manipulate both race and religion. Can you expand a bit on that for us? Yeah. it In my conversation with um, Dr. Modern, one of the things that we talked about was the way in which in the late 19th um, century, anthropologists like Tyler and others were trying to understand the way in which you could turn prayer into a scientific concept. So could you visualize it as data? Could you structure it? Could you test it with hypotheses? And their their goal to find out whether prayer works uh, was something that changed how they thought of prayer. So one of the things that Modern said that really struck with me is that it was an an instrumentalization. It made prayer in, into an instrument. And, and by proxy, it turned religion into a, a thing with tools and tools that have aims and goals and ends. And, and to that end, uh, Tyler and others um, uh, uh, mocked religion for its inability to show that prayer had real world, world effects and, and uh, set up a battleground that I think we, we see today uh, between science and religion. The history of, of scientific investigations about race is extremely disgusting and, and covers a gamut of um, uh, profoundly disturbing theoretical concepts and medicalization um, and experiments on on people of color. And, and one of the things that, that Modern and I spoke about was how we can continue to see the consequences of the way in which we treat prayer and religion as as objects of data as elements of our life that can be uh, reduced to specific outcomes and and part of the process there really has the the effect of um, instantiating holding up the categories of race um, that often are are constructed and constructed in ways that disadvantage people of color uh, and elevate people um, who are seen or act as white um, and it's part of the ongoing conversation I think in the world right now. Uh, and the movement to expand racial justice to recognize that these are longstanding structural issues, not not only in religion for the way that it treats race as an issue, but science for how it treats race and religion uh, in similar kinds of ways. And this concept of, of deconstructing prejudiced institutions is something that we're going to talk about more frequently on the Religious Studies Project and particularly next season after the break. Um, And we actually have a wonderful episode coming up next week, which is going to continue this conversation. Dave, what do we have coming up next time? 
Well, next time we are going to be having a conversation between Mallory Nye and Christopher Cotter on decolonizing the study of religion. And we're really looking forward to that. And until then, all that's left to say is thanks for listening. listening. The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Marek Sullivan and Rebecca Barrett-Fox, and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock, with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop, and video editing by Jonathan Tuckett. Don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals. <laughs>